0: Our scripture today comes from Mark. You can stand or sit. I don't care. Mark 2, 18 through 22. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for the fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, I'd like to introduce you guys to Jason Brown. He is a Josh and Linnea connection, so I think that speaks for itself right there.
1: Thank you, Katie. Hey, thanks for the opportunity to be with you here today. Um, I, I hope at the end of the time you'll be glad about it too. Uh, so yeah, I know I know Josh. Uh, actually, I knew Josh's dad back in Pella. I'm more Josh's dad's vintage than I am Josh's vintage. But we've been getting together probably four times a year for the last three four years, and. Uh, I'm always kind of amazed when a congregation like, yeah, you can come and talk to us, uh, without even knowing me. So I think it says a lot about Josh, actually, and Linnea. So uh, a little bit about myself. I've been married to Emily, who's right there in the middle, for 23 years. We've got three kids. Two kids are in college. Uh, so we just, we got a junior in college. We just sent off another one who's a freshman, Joe and Jack. And then we've got a sophomore daughter, Pearl, in Norwalk right now. I was actually in ministry for 22 years. So right out of college, I worked with a group called InterVarsity and they're kind of a campus ministry group. I did that for 12 years. And then my wife and I, we moved to Southern California and that's, I became a pastor in a church out there. I was one of the pastors at kind of a bigger church. And it was in Paramount. Uh, Paramount you've never heard of, but our neighbor two miles to the west was Compton. You may have heard of that place. And then we started a church with that denomination, and my best friend, Bill, who was another pastor, we went into Long Beach, and we started City Church of Long Beach, and did that for three and a half years. Happy to tell you that City Church celebrated its 10th anniversary in January. So it was actually a good thing when I left. It got better. Um, And Emily and I, we wanted to get back home. We're from Iowa. We wanted to be closer to our family, Also, uh, I think we wanted to see some green grass again. That was pleasurable. And I was interested in just, are my skills transferable? I I had been in ministry for 22 years, and there was a part of me that thought, could I function in the real world as myself? And so I've now been at an organization called Foster Group for seven years, and uh, it's a financial planning investment management firm. I never thought I'd be a pastor, I never thought I'd be in a financial planning firm, and it's been super great. And a couple of my colleagues are here today as well. I think just kind of, you know, support for me <laughs> to do this. Um, so I want to share a few stories in the Gospel of Mark. So this passage, the scripture that we just read, uh I'm going to get to that at the end, but I want to share some stories before it and after it. And the reason why I want to look through a bunch of stories is because I think there's kind of a trajectory Jesus is on, and it's going to help us see that trajectory. And there's a lot of action. One of the things I love about the Gospel of Mark is, first of all, it was probably the first book in the Bible that I became uh, aware of when I was 19 years old and got in a group that was a small group, and we were just looking at the stories of Jesus. And one of the things I love about Mark 2 is I think the word and occurs something like 1,200 times, 450 plus sentences start with the word and. So I love the pace of it. I love the energy of the writer. Um, Anyway, so we're going to look at that. The the thing that bookends the stories we're going to look at is Jesus calls four fishermen to come and be with him. Uh, Simon Andrew James John that's kind of right before these stories and then at the end he has 12 people that become this group known as the disciples so let's pull up the first story and we're gonna look at it now I'll do my best Kate to you know help you know where we're going you'll probably pick up on it so I want to say some things about each story but I want us to notice some similarities and there's one kind of key difference that happens throughout so in this story, a leper comes to Jesus. This would be one of the similarities that we see is this cast of characters that would have be called kind of unclean in the society that would live on the margins of society. They're the ones initiating the action in almost all of these stories. It's not actually Jesus who's initiating the action. It's them. And this leper comes to Jesus and said, if you will, you can make me clean. There is a lot of human drama going on in this story that would be nice to sit and you know, stay with, we're going to move kind of quickly. Um, and uh, as it turns out, uh, Jesus does want to. It says he's moved with pity. And that word is so good because it's, it's the word for guts. It's the seed of human emotion. And so I think you all, according to Josh, regularly talk about Jesus being uh, God in the flesh in all of his fullness. And so God in all of his fullness in the flesh in that moment was moved with pity, feeling incredible empathy towards this person. I wish we had his name. We don't have his name, just leper. And uh, Jesus says, I will. The the key here, Jesus at times kind of heals from a distance or he just pronounces healing. In this one, he's very intentional. He doesn't just say, hey, be healed. He reaches out and he touches him. Incredibly significant. But when Jesus does that, he breaks the law. And that's another one of the similarities we're gonna see. So we have this group of people that is initiating the action, and we have Jesus who is continuing to break the law. Here's kind of the strangeness about that, is if Jesus is God in all of God's fullness in a human body, he is violating a law that God gave earlier on. Interesting. Um, and Jesus tells him, Hey, don't tell anyone. Go show yourselves to the priest. Do what the law says you should do. The leper's too excited. He does tell everyone. And then the final similarity we'll see is there's a reaction to what Jesus does as well. So the reaction here is sort of very passive, but Jesus is no longer able to enter a town openly. I think because he became unclean when he touched the leper. And so he now, as an unclean person, is not able to go into cities. So there's this kind of resistance to the work of Jesus. That resistance is going to move from being very passive to being very active at the end of these stories. So in the next story, uh, Jesus, uh, There's a gr- uh, some friends bring a paralytic to Jesus in this small, small town named Capernaum. Uh, I know I'm, 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 you probably many of you have probably read this story many times. Uh, again, a lot of drama going on here. They're, they don't just, they're not able to walk through the crowd. my guess is the crowd was not particularly welcoming to that paralytic, being in their presence. They break through the roof, lower the paralytic. And then we meet a new group of people in this story as well. So we've got this sort of unclean group. We have Jesus. And now there's a new group, the religious leaders that are showing up. And there would be no drama in the story. There'd be no antagonist to the protagonist if these religious leaders did not show up. And Jesus, rather than just immediately healing, he does what I think is a very intentionally provocative thing, given the new group of people that is there, is he tells the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. Now, in their hearts, this is also interesting. So the questioning in this group that is going on takes, for, takes place first internally. That's where we see it happening. Jesus can perceive what's going on with them. And so, And, and, you know, they're, they're saying to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're exactly right. God's the only one who can do this. And they charge within themselves, not out loud, not to anyone else, they're charging Jesus with this thing called blasphemy. It's a very serious charge. It's actually a capital offense. They don't act on it yet. Uh, and Jesus in order to prove that he has the authority to do the invisible thing which is forgiving sins, he does the visible thing which is to heal the paralytic. And I'm pretty sure that's I'm pretty sure that's why he was there anyway or that's why his friends brought him is to be healed. But Jesus also forgives his sins. I love the reaction at the end because it's just a good reminder for me, so let me read it. Um, They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And I sort of think to myself, no kidding. Um, You know, that phrase familiarity breeds contempt, and it's easy for me to forget that Jesus did, I mean, for lack of a better word, really crazy stuff like this. And when these people saw it, just like we would, I mean, if we were watching somebody do these kinds of things, I think we might say with an exclamation point, we've never seen anything like this before. And that's the response. So in the next story... um, He's going out, and this time Jesus does initiate the action. Again, with a person who would have been in this category of unclean, he calls this tax collector named Levi to follow him. That was a novelty in terms of uh, teachers in Jewish society asking somebody like Levi to be with him. And Jesus uh, right away reciprocates the invitation. So Jesus says, follow me. And then Levi says, hey, you come follow me and they go to Levi's house and Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Now, that group of people, the religious leaders, rather than asking something in their heart, they move it externally, but they don't ask Jesus yet. They ask the people around him, hey, why does he do this? Again, I think it's a logical question. People weren't doing this. It's entirely fair that they would ask this. They ask his disciples. And the story Jesus tells is very short It's the sick who need a doctor. And for me, one of the things that's interesting about that is there was a healing of the leper, there was a healing of the paralytic, and Jesus equates his presence among these people or this group of people as a type of healing as well. And there's not necessarily a huge response here, but what we begin to see is that the resistance, the questions that are being asked are gonna move from a place that's kind of of curiosity more to accusation. It's right after this that the story that we just read occurs, and like I said, I'm gonna come back to this. So after this story, we again have something that's in kind of a similar line, is Jesus is on a Sabbath. Now this is interesting it's not Jesus that's initiating the action it's not necessarily a group of people that are unclean it's his disciples and they're going through the fields on a sabbath day and they're plucking heads of grain this too was not lawful they were breaking the law And I guess in that sense, they are kind of becoming unclean as well in doing that. And the religious leaders are again there. It's very interesting to me that they, by this point, always just seem to be watching Jesus. And they're functioning as a kind of police. I don't mean that in a bad way, necessarily. Like, the law was just the law, like the speed limit is the speed limit, or you can't just go and build something on somebody else's property. It's just the law. And they were kind of the policemen, and they wanted to make sure that people were functioning according to the law. And so they're watching very closely. They're picking these heads of grain on the Sabbath. And this time they do come to Jesus. So initially the questions were in here. They begin to externalize towards others. Now they're coming directly at Jesus with the question, why? And I don't know, you know, some of you are parents. But whenever I go to, like, our daughter, our youngest, Pearl, and I say, hey, why did you leave the lights on? I'm not actually wanting her to give an answer. It's not like I'm curious about her answer. You know, like, just please tell me what was going on in your head that caused you to leave the lights on your... It's just more of a hey, don't do that, um, and that's what's happening here. I think, and Jesus tells a super interesting, really obscure story, kind of from Jewish past. He says, well, hey, don't you remember this time uh, when David? And this is so great because Jesus has a—he actually has a really good sense of humor, because he is telling to these people who literally have memorized every word of the Jewish scriptures. And saying, hey, don't you guys remember this time? <laughs> like, oh, yes, we remember this time. Uh, and it's when David, he was in the middle of a war. All of his men were hungry. They didn't have any food. And so they go into the synagogue and they grab the bread of the presence. Just because they're hungry, they do something unlawful. And Jesus here is sort of likening himself to David. And he's saying, look, my friends are hungry. That's all that's happening here. And so they're going to pluck heads of grain because they're hungry. Just like David did back then. But Jesus decides he's going to take this a step further because it's not just David that he's going to liken himself to. Is he says, "Hey, first of all, remember the Sabbath was given to you as a gift." The Israelites were enslaved. Seven days a week, manual, super hard labor. And when God pulled them out of Egypt, he said, just like I rested on the seventh day, I want you to do that to do. Absolutely no work. And it was a gift, right? You don't have to work seven days. Um, God didn't say um, you couldn't take a Saturday off either. He just said at least one day you need to do no work. And he ends his story by saying, and guess what? The Son of Man can do whatever he wants on the Sabbath. Now that is potentially one of the most sort of uh, divisive things that Jesus says in his whole life. It's very subtle. But when he says that i can do whatever i choose to do on the sabbath he's not just likening himself to david he's likening himself to god who gets to decide the rules on this thing and that is the straw that breaks the camel's back for the religious leaders because in the next story it's also on a sabbath and Jesus enters the synagogue and there's a man with a withered hand there. Um, I doubt that he had been to synagogue for a long, long time because he wouldn't have been particularly welcome in that spot, neither would of the leper, neither would of the paralytic, neither would of anyone else who fell into this category of unclean and so I think it's okay to make the assumption that the religious leaders went out, they grabbed this guy, and they planted him in that spot with intentionality. And why did they do this? Because now they knew the script. When Jesus shows up and people need healing, even if it requires breaking the law, he's going to do it. And I want to spend just a few minutes looking at what Jesus says here. He says to the man, come here. So he says to the man, come here. And then he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. I think this is a very easy question to answer, don't you? Uh, five-year-olds could probably answer it. I think it's good to save life. I think it's good to do good. But religious people, like me, tend to complicate what should be easy answers. And so they're silent. And he looked around at them with anger. I always get a little nervous about going here, but the Greek word there is orge. I'll let you do the math on that. It was a particularly heightened form of anger. He looked at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart. That's a fun word too. Grieved at their cardioporosis. And this word grief occurs exactly one time in the New Testament. It's right here. And it has actually, it's not really a word to express an individual sense of grief. It's a word to express a collective sense of grief. And we're just going to use our imagination for a second. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that community of people collectively were profoundly sad at what was happening here. And it also has the sense of giving one's life away. And you can think about like an event that is so sad that, I mean, don't use the phrase, it takes your breath away. That's the sense here that what was happening was like the life was literally ebbing out of Jesus when he saw what was taking place. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand, and heals him. After this, the religious leaders go and plot with the Herodians about how to destroy Jesus, not just kill. They could have used that word. But they're going to obliterate him. And so, you know, again, here's this group of people. Jesus heals them. In doing so, he breaks the law. You could think about, it's a group of people that are on the outside of the circle, and what Jesus is constantly doing is bringing these people on the outside into the middle of the circle. And there's this response that moves from something very passive into something that's incredibly aggressive. And I think the question I wrote on the next slide is, how does it get here? How does it get to this point? And now I want to look at the scripture that was read today uh, I I remember coming across this little passage when I was 23 years old and thinking to myself I have no idea what he is saying here when I first read it so it's like this riddle or conundrum some of you probably have thought about this a lot so it's not much of a riddle or conundrum but Jesus, in doing all of these things, now the Pharisees come to him and say, hey, John's disciples fast, why don't you fast? And Jesus, in response to that, tells three stories. The first one, he says, is, can a bridegroom, you know, when the wedding is taking place, when a wedding is happening and Jesus likens his presence here on earth to a wedding feast, and just practice, Reed and Katie, my friends, right up there, they just got married a few weeks ago. And if, if I would have shown up at the party afterwards and it would have been like, hey, just to let you all know, no drinks, no food, time of fasting for all of us. That would have made all of us very sad and confused because at a wedding, what do you do? Is you you celebrate like crazy. And so Jesus says, hey, when the wedding is taking place, you don't fast. Nobody does that. He moves on and he says, here's another thing that nobody does. Nobody sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. I am old enough. I don't know how many of you fall into this category. When I was little and had my first pair of jeans, or my first few pairs of jeans, my mom didn't go out and buy new pairs of jeans. She would actually sew another piece of jeans onto my jeans. Um, But what she knew, what my mom knew, is that you, you, She couldn't sew a new piece because if she showed a new piece and then she washed it and dried it, it would shrink it and the tear would just be even worse than it was before. Um, And that's what Jesus is saying here is, here's another thing that no one ever does because when they do this, it just makes things worse. And then the final story along these lines, really to drive it home, is he says, and no one pours new wine into an old wineskin. You all can imagine why this is the case. Wineskins were made out of leather. They needed to be flexible. They needed to be able to stretch because when new wine was poured in and the fermentation happened, they had to be able to stretch because, right? They had to be able to expand. And so if you poured new wine into an old wine skin, that skin couldn't stretch anymore. And when the fermentation happened, not only did it rip a hole in the wine skin, which was actually quite useful to hold things like water and other liquids, uh, it would destroy that. But also the new wine would just fall out of it. And Jesus says new wine requires new wineskins. So, why does Jesus say this? What is he up to? Um, the, one more thing here. He says, you know, when you pour that new wine into an old wineskin, the wines burst. And it's a bit of a warning to the people who are there. Is, look, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. That is not going to change So something else needs to change in order to take in what it is that I'm doing. And if that thing doesn't change, you are going to burst. And at the end of the series of the stories we looked at, the religious leaders are bursting. They are plotting to destroy Jesus. So for me... I've thought a lot about what is that new wineskin? Uh, What's the new wineskin that I need to have in order to take in the action of Jesus that is always new, that is always creative, that is always sort of pressing my boundaries? And not just take it in, how can we not thwart it? and rather than thwarting it, how can we celebrate it? What is it that we do? And this idea of a wineskin, it's not just sort of a, a particular perspective. We can think about it as, as like, um, it's a mental model or a mental framework or a, a theology. It's not just one thing, it's a lot of things. And it goes even beyond that because a wineskin, this mental framework most of the time is actually supported by various apparatus, such as our theology, such as the groups of people that we plant ourselves in, such as our culture. It's like a whole thing that supports this way of thinking or walking through the earth and Jesus is saying to this group of people you're going to have to get an entirely new one of these it's a big deal um, so what is the new wineskin I I'll, I'll, I don't I don't know why I, I This should be easy for me to say this to all of you, but for whatever reason, it's not. I think it's, I feel like it's slightly unsophisticated. Um, It doesn't have much teeth. It feels very Sunday schooly, but here's a potential answer is the new wineskin is love. What does love look like? And just to give it a little bit of support from the life of Jesus, a religious scholar comes to Jesus and says, hey, what's the most important thing from the Old Testament, from our scriptures? And Jesus gives the right answer right away. He's a good boy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the religious scholar, it's great. He goes, yep, nailed it. Yeah, he did. But then Jesus, there's an innovation, there's a novelty. He says, and there's one just like this as well. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was new. Then Jesus says, and I love this, he says, the entire law and the prophets can be summed up in these two things. And I think there's part of it like the whole kit and caboodle, like all of it can just be just in those two things. And Jesus like, well, not exactly, because later on he says, and then let me add one more. Love your enemies as well. But the word that's consistent between all of these three is love, 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 love. And that that then potentially is what forms the wineskin that if we can sort of say, hey, this is the big deal is just Love we could have the capacity to continue to participate with what God is up to on this planet. And when I say what God is up to, what I mean is not just same song, different verse, but I mean that the Holy Spirit maybe is continuing to sing new songs and new songs and new songs, and we could be just like the Pharisees and stop the expansion of God's circle into new places, bringing new people into that circle by the way that we think or by our theology. But what if our theology was encapsulated by this question, what does love look like? The more sort of abstract we get with that, the wider we get, the more confusing it is. But in the life of Jesus, like it's just like this person this particular person, a leper, at this particular time, in this particular place. And when we get down into the particulars, like right now, what love has looked like for some of you is Nate came up to me as I'm grabbing a drink of water. And Nate could have just walked by, right? I mean, but instead, he came up to me and goes, hey, who are you? Welcome. What are you doing here? And I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And when I walked in here, Allie and Matt, you know, right away they said, "Hi, hey, how are you? And Kate's been kind to me. Um, just That's what Jason needed in this moment. He needed a little, well, like the leper, he needed a little touch. And as I was talking with my wife about this, I'm so thankful that she likes to talk with me about my brilliant ideas, still. Um, She said, and you just kind of know what love is. You just kind of know what it is. All right, just want to finish with this story and this this comes from the time when we lived in Paramount. And one of the things that's really fun about this church is that it was planted by a bunch of Dutch immigrants to that area when that area that we were in, which if you went to it now, you would not believe this, was entirely Portuguese and Dutch dairy farmers. And you would think to yourself, like, there is no way there was ever a farm in this place because it is cement and houses and businesses everywhere. And all of these Dutch, the denomination was Reformed Church of America. All these churches had basically died when the neighborhood started changing. And by some miracle of God, like 30 years ago, this church said, hey, we need to become like the neighborhood. And so by the time I got there, it was still, there was still a lot of Dutch people. By the time we got there, But it was 51% non-white, a wide range of people. And one of the small groups that met there, our friend Oscar was in. Oscar was a young guy. He was Latino. Oscar ended up coaching both of our sons with me in soccer because Oscar knew what was going on, and I did not. So it was really good to have Oscar on the coaching staff for those eight-year-olds. he was in a small group, and one of the guys, he was young, he was the only young guy. One of the guys in the small group was Cliff. Cliff was an old white guy, and the group was mostly composed of people like Cliff, and Cliff wasn't hesitant to talk about his political perspectives in that small group. I won't no need to go into what those perspectives were, but let's just say Oscar didn't necessarily feel s- safe in sharing his personal story. And his personal story that he was that he had been and always was and still was in our country illegally. But one day in this small group, and Oscar loved Cliff and Cliff loved Oscar. I don't know what happened, but Oscar decided to go for it, and he just let the group know, including Cliff, hey, by the way, I am one of those people that you just talked about. No longer a political abstraction. It was just Oscar. And I suppose it could have gone really bad. But instead, it went really great. And Cliff reaffirmed his love for Oscar. And that took Cliff and his wife Betty down a different road. Because that, Cliff and Betty, get this. They had retired and they lived in a place a little ways away. You're going to love the title of this place. It literally exists called Leisure World. It's incredible. Leisure World. You drive by this thing, it's like this huge rotating globe and it says Leisure World on it. And Cliff and Betty, the journey that God had them on, they moved from Leisure World, this retired white couple, into Compton so that they could be a part of our church plant there. And that's What love looks like. All right. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, thanks for the chance to be together this morning. Jesus, thank you for showing up on this planet and doing what you did. Spirit, thank you that you are alive and well today. You are singing new songs and help us. Tune our ear fearlessly to the songs that you are singing. Help this group of people do that. Help me. And we pray this in Jesus' name.